Thank you for tuning in to Horty Springer's Health Law Expressions podcast. This is a series we're calling the Kickback Chronicles. We will start today with a particular case, and then as we find uh, other cases reported, we will utilize those cases as the basis for future podcasts. My name is Henry Cassell. I'm a partner with the law firm of Horty Springer, and with me is... Kayla Mazoffer. I'm an associate here at Horty Springer. Uh, as background, most of the, the cases that we see brought in this area are brought under the Federal False Claims Act. Now, the Federal False Claims Act does have a criminal provision, but it's more, uh, it's used more often in civil enforcement. Uh, in 2020, according to the government, the Department of Justice, the government recovered 1.8 million of federal losses in fiscal year 2020 with an additional tens of millions of dollars for state Medicaid agencies in civil recoveries under the False Claims Act. They believed that there was an additional $400 million in Federal False Claims Act settlements in the first half of 2021, and uh, we don't have information after that, but we expect 2021 to be as banner a year for the government as 2020 was. And in fact, if today's case is any indication, we believe 2022 will cause the government to even exceed their current recoveries. Now, there are several false claims theories, and there's something called factually false claims. That is when you bill for something that did not occur. That's what we're going to talk about today. There are also legally false claims theories, which um, also kind of impact what we'll talk about today. And this is where you make an express or implied certification that you are billing the government in accordance with all their laws. And this is what the government typically uses for uh, to bring a case under the uh, anti-kickback statute or the Stark law. The False Claims Act, as I said, is a civil law, and when they enforce it under the civil provisions, they will they don't have to prove actual knowledge that the claim was submitted was false. They can use a uh, standard that they refer to as the reckless disregard or deliberate ignorance standard. So there's often no requirement for proof of specific intent to defraud in order to find a civil uh, recovery under the False Claims Act. But it is clear that there's case law and even the government will admit that mistakes do not violate the law. The problem is they won't tell you how many mistakes you can make until you enter into the realm of reckless disregard or deliberate ignorance, which do violate the law. Uh, If we were dealing with the Civil False Claims Act, the penalties are triple the amount of damage caused to the government, plus a per claim penalty that increases every year. Uh, in 2022, the amounts were $11,803 to 23331 per claim. And the reason those numbers are so odd is they started with a nice round number and they get in, they are increased every year. The government can, however, bring criminal charges. Oh, I should add before I get there that this is the law that is uh, used by private uh, enforcement called the key Tom relators. Key Tom is an uh, Latin phrase that means he who does on behalf of his the king as well as himself and allows a private individual to act as a uh, U.S. attorney general and bring a claim under the False Claims Act and then um, 
sharing the recovery. Either the uh, the private citizen who's known as a relator usually sues on their own. The government decides whether they want to intervene in the case. If the government intervenes, then the FBI investigates, the Department of Justice prosecutes, and there is ultimately often a civil recovery and the relator gets a portion of that, plus they get attorney's fees. If the relator, if the government decides not to intervene, and they often do that, then the uh, chance for a recovery decreases. However, if the uh, if there is a settlement or if it goes to trial and there is a finding of liability, then the uh, relator obtains a much higher percentage of the recovery, plus they also can get attorney's fees. And there are often tag-along claims that the government will use, including unjust enrichment, payment by mistake, and they love restitution to bring a restitution claim. That's what we generally see. However, every once in a while, and unfortunately, because we're calling the, this session the Kickback Chronicles, because it happens more than we would believe and more than we would like to see, the federal government decides that certain actions are so egregious that they decide to bring a criminal violation, uh, indict a provider under the criminal federal statutes. And there, they're not limited to the um, False Claims Act, and they can use other federal claims. And that's what happened here. I am now going to turn this over to our associate, and uh, Halo will now describe a recent case that was just decided in, I believe it was April of 2022, and um, it was a jury verdict, finding liability, and the reason why the government brings a criminal action is that the entire billing system, while there's contracts and there's all kinds of legal requirements, it's basically relies on trust. It, the government trusts the individuals to provide them with accurate information as to the claims they submitted, and the, government, the, the providers trust the government that if they do that, they're going to be paid the amount that is due pursuant to their participating provider agreement. Because of that trust, the system is allowed to operate. It would just, the system would completely break down if the government was required to, if the provider, excuse me, was required to prove that the services were medically necessary and actually provided in order to submit a claim. That would just back everything up. So the, the, the current process, the, the um, commerce, if you will, of billing and collection is that providers are permitted to bill the government based on the information they provide the government. The government believes that they provided that, those services and they will pay them the amount due for as if those services were actually provided. Unfortunately, you run into people every once in a while that abuse that trust. And Hala, why don't you tell us the facts of the situation that we want to focus on today? So in this case, we have Thomas O'Lear, who by training is a licensed radiography technologist, but he's also president or was president of Portable Radiology Services. So this is a an Ohio-based company that had a model similar to a lot of companies across the country that provided portable x-ray services to individuals in nursing facilities, so nursing homes, skilled nursing facilities, and long-term care facilities. 
The company uh, operated out of four locations across Ohio, so it was a little bit larger of an operation. And as the indictment alleges, as President O'Lear controlled business operations and billing at Portable Radiology. So starting in January 2013 until about the end of 2017, O'Lear engaged in a number of criminal, criminal practices related to his position at Portable Radiology. So his criminal indictment charged him with 25 counts of healthcare fraud that arose out of a variety of different types of offenses. So one was billing for services provided after beneficiaries had died, billing for services provided when the beneficiaries were either hospitalized or in hospice care, so they weren't even at the nursing facility, uh, billing for services provided on dates after the nursing facility had terminated its contract with portable radiology, billing for single x-ray sessions as multiple sessions, which actually required CMS to reimburse portable radiology for transportation on each date, uh, then billing for services that had no documentation that the services ever occurred, uh, and then creating fake orders for services, forging signatures of physicians and radiology techs, and then billing for those services, all to conceal that the services were never provided. And then on top of that, they charged him with one count of making false statements related to healthcare matters by attempting to cover up his scheme, creating those false documents and foraging the signatures of the physicians and radiology techs. So, hey, look, not only did he bill dead people yes. uh, or, and people that were supposed that he claimed were in a nursing home after they had been discharged, then he made up stuff to cover up his fraud. Yeah, he created the fake orders <laughs> and tried to make a credible paper trail. Um, and then on top of all that, uh, the grand jury also charged him with a government favorite forfeiture, so which meant he would have to forfeit all property directly or indirectly derived from the profits to those offenses. So how do you do this? I mean, why would any human being think that they could get away with billing dead people? And the reason is, is that he got away with this for a long time. It was, um, the, the, according to the, the uh, allegations in the indictment, uh, he had billed Medicare over $3.7 over the course of five years, for which he was reimbursed around $2 million. So that this went on for a while. So at some point, he may have actually believed that, hey, they're paying me, therefore it must be okay. But that's not the way these laws work. And when they were able to, they did find him eventually. And hey, this was a jury trial, right? Yeah. And so they brought this criminal indictment. They were able to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt that he actually billed uh, Medicare for services provided to dead people, which I got to tell you, I mean, I have a great deal of respect for U.S. attorneys, and they're usually pretty bright people, but you don't have to be too smart to be able to show a date of service on January 1st and uh, when the government can show that the person died on December 1st. So it's it doesn't take a brain surgeon to prove these cases, and but it's so frustrating to see that things like this actually exist. And so um, the, the case was presented to the jury. The jury uh, was required to, to, the government was required to prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt. And Halo, were they able to do that? And what happened? Yeah, so he was found guilty on, I think it was two dozen charges. So he was only acquitted on three counts of healthcare fraud. So he was not able to get away with billing dead people. Um, 
And not all the dead people. Not just, all, some just some of them. <laughs> um, and then he hasn't been sentenced yet. Sentencing isn't until the end of August. But according to prosecutors, he is facing some very serious time. So each of the healthcare fraud counts uh, carry a 10-year maximum. And then the false statements relating to healthcare matter carries a five-year max. And then the two aggravated identity theft counts for forging the signatures of the physician and the radiology techs carry a two-year minimum that have to be con uh, served consecutively. So what we like to, what I like to point out is the difference between what happens in a criminal trial and what happens in a civil trial. Mm -hmm. Remember, there's a lower standard of proof in a civil trial. So the government tends to throw a lot of claims in there. They tend to show that... Or, so use patterns, all kinds of things. When they're trying to put somebody in jail, they have to prove that on this date, you submitted a claim for this radiology service for this person who died three months earlier. Yeah. So the, the, the uh, proof that's required is more exacting. The penalties are really significant. And therefore, the government is able to focus on a finite number of cases, much fewer cases, many fewer cases than they would use if we were using, if they were bringing a civil false claims matter. But the fact that he, okay, so he's going to be sentenced August sometime. August 2nd, yeah. Okay, early so August. he is going to jail. The only question that's left is how long? But the government is not done with him. The, the, Office of Inspector General has regulations. They have mandatory exclusions and permissive exclusions. Once you are convicted of healthcare fraud, there is a mandatory exclusion. You are mandatorily excluded from the federal healthcare program, all federal healthcare programs, for a minimum of five years. If they were, if you do it again, it would, the minimum is ten years. And if you are stupid enough to do it a third time, uh, then they can exclude you for life. Now, uh, what? we also see is that the state board will use the conviction to take away the individual's license and if this if this provider this provider was a radiation technologist right yeah correct if it were a hospital instead a tax exempt hospital what would happen at this point is the IRS would now move in. Well, the IRS doesn't have anything to do with the fraud and abuse laws. But many years ago, the IRS as a policy made it, stated a policy that if a tax-exempt organization violates the Federal False Claims Act, their view is that tax-exempt organizations comply with the law, and therefore if you are found to, be, to violate a criminal law, then the IRS will come in and take away your tax exemption. Now, if you lose your tax exemption, the most obvious effect of that is that you would have to begin to pay taxes. A not so obvious, but actually more punitive effect is that all of the tax exempt bonds that you have outstanding will become immediately due and payable. And that harms the, that, that will send the hospital into bankruptcy. It will create a frenzy for uh, plaintiff's lawyers who represent the bondholders. And so the IRS really doesn't like that. They don't particularly want to exclude a hospital unless they absolutely have to. But they don't have any qualms whatsoever, and the OIG understands that, because if they exclude a hospital, then a lot of people that rely on that hospital can't get care. Mm -hmm. 
they, that isn't lost on them. So what their most recent modus operandi is to not exclude the hospital, but focus on the people who operate the hospital and go to Hela and say, Hela, you know, we could exclude the hospital, but we don't want to do that. We'd rather exclude you. And if they and you say, well, hey, I don't refer anybody to a uh, healthcare program. I'm a hospital administrator. What difference does it make if I get excluded? A huge difference. If you get excluded, then you cannot work for any organization that receives any kind of federal health care program money, and therefore you are essentially radioactive. Now, we don't we weren't dealing with a but I digress. I just want to make sure that people who uh, work in the tax exempt field realize that um, there are penalties in addition to the fraud and abuse laws that can be added added on. Now, what happens, what will happen to this individual is that he will lose his license. He will be excluded from Medicare. He will go to jail. If once he gets out of jail, he wants to try to become a radiation technologist or whatever he was licensed as before, he might find a state board that is willing to grant him a license. But what he's going to find is that most commercial insurers will not uh, once they find out he's been excluded and convicted, they won't allow him to participate. And Medicare has been doing something that we've noticed lately where you're off the, he's off the excluded list. So technically he can participate, but when he, but you have to apply to participate and Medicare will just say no. So you end up in this weird Medicaid, Medicare limbo where you're not excluded, but you're not permitted to participate either, all, which will also make him unemployable uh, for the foreseeable future. So again, laws that are based on trust really punish individuals and entities that abuse that trust. So crime does not pay. That's the simple lesson that we hope you learn from this podcast. But it's really hard to believe. I mean, we've been talking about this for years, and yet we still see cases like this. In fact, just yesterday, I saw a couple more cases that are going to be the basis of our next podcast. So that it's hard to believe in this day and age that there are people still out there that think they can get away with this. But look at this situation. He got away with it for how many years, Hala? Almost five years. Five years, three and a half, three over three million dollars in claims and over two million dollars in reimbursement. You might begin to think, hey, they don't. Who's looking? They're paying it. It must be okay. That's not the way this works. Eventually, the government caught up with him, and as a result, he has paid for his crimes. Just the attorney's fees when Hela was able to find the docket. And you see, every time I see a docket entry, all I think about are attorney's fees to to address the, the motion or whatever was um, included in that docket. So not only did he have to incur attorney's fees, but uh, he, as, as Hela said, the government's going after restitution. So they're going to get their $2 million back. They're going to try to while you can't get blood from a turnip, they are frustratingly amazing at trying to find money or finding money that people think they have hidden. And that he, so he has paid for his crime, crimes. And due to the effect of a conviction for healthcare fraud and the effect of exclusion, he will continue to pay for those crimes for many years in the future. Thank you very much, Taylor. Thank you. Thank you.